Welcome back to Heroes of the Faith, a show where we are inspired by the lives of the saints so that we can become saints ourselves. I'm your host, Deacon Isaac Longworth, and in just under a week, I will no longer be referring to myself as Deacon Isaac, but Father Isaac. Because in about a week, I'm going to be ordained a Catholic priest, and I am so excited. You have no idea. I've been in seminary for nine years, and finally the day of my priestly ordination has come. And as I was preparing for the priesthood, one of the books that I read to really get into the spirit of it was a book called Insinu Jesu, which is Latin for On the Heart of Jesus. And it's written by a priest about how the priesthood is a way to minister to the heart of Jesus and to receive his love in prayer. And the author talks a lot about how a priest should imitate St. John, the beloved disciple. St. John was, of course, one of the first priests and bishops ordained by Jesus himself. And throughout his life, St. John modeled in a really special way what the priesthood should look like, that it should be centered on receiving the love of Jesus and then taking that love and serving others. And I was reflecting on that as as my day of ordination gets closer. And so I thought I'd share with you today on this show, the life of St. John, the beloved disciple. Now, much of what we know about the life of John comes from the Bible. He came from a fishing family in Galilee. His dad was named Zebedee. His mom was named Salome, and he had an older brother named James. And they were just a normal Jewish family living at the time. Uh, The Romans had occupied Palestine at that time. The Jews had been a conquered people, and they were waiting in uh, this occupied state, waiting for a Messiah who would come to rescue his people. God had promised that he would send a deliverer, a Messiah who would come to the people and would set them free. And so they were waiting for this time. Uh, James and John, while working the family trade of fishing, were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they were always on the lookout for who it could be. Now, when John was a young man, maybe even as young as being a teenager, he and his brother James heard that there was a wild man living in the wilderness named John the Baptist. Now, I've done a show already on John the Baptist. He's actually a relative, Jesus's cousin. And John the Baptist was preaching to the people. He was causing a big commotion, causing a revival to happen. And he was preaching to them that God's kingdom is coming. And so it's time to repent of your sins, to turn away from them and be baptized, be dunked into water as a symbol of washing away all of that sin, dying to your old life, like your old life is being drowned, and then coming up ready for the kingdom of God that is coming. And some people thought that maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah that had been promised to the people and they were starting to follow him. But John was always very clear in saying, someone is coming after me who is greater. I'm just preparing the way for him. And so John and his brother James were very moved by the preaching of John the Baptist. And so they repented of their sins. They became more devoted in their faith to God. And they began to follow after John the Baptist and listen to his teaching. Now, one day Jesus himself came to the river to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed out to his followers, Jesus, and said, this is the man who I've been preparing you for. And so John the Baptist kind of had this transfer of power where he wanted his disciples to go and follow after Jesus. 
And it's possible at this point that John and his brother James uh, stayed with Jesus for a while, listened to his teaching, kind of tested him out to see if he was really all that John the Baptist said he was before they went back to going fishing with their family. So they were interested in Jesus, but perhaps not committed yet to fully give their life to him. But all of that changed when Jesus came down to the lakefront one day where they were fishing and he began teaching the people from a fishing boat, Uh, not James and John's fishing boat, but Peter and Andrew's who would also become apostles with Jesus. So Jesus was standing in the boat and preaching to the crowd on the shore, probably so that his voice would be amplified over the water. And after he was done preaching, he invited Peter and Andrew to go out into the lake to catch fish because they hadn't caught any fish the night before. Well, you probably know this story. It's one of the most famous miracles in the Bible. But as they went out into the lake and they threw their nets in, they pulled in such a catch of fish that their ship was in danger of sinking. And so they had to call over for help. Now, luckily, James and John were also fishing close by and they were able to take their boat out and help them bring the fish in. And both boats were filled almost to overflowing. So this was a huge miracle that had a big impression on them. And afterwards, while James and John were mending their nets from the huge catch of fish, Jesus came up to them in their boat and simply said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. No longer did Jesus want them to stay fishermen catching fish. He wanted them to be his followers, his disciples, his apostles, and they would go out and catch men for the kingdom of God that he was bringing, just as had been promised. And so they believed him. They left behind their nets, they left behind their boats, their families, and they followed Jesus. They were all in now. They had seen a miracle and they were committed to giving their life to this man. Now, Jesus called John to be one of his 12 apostles. The 12 apostles were the closest followers of Jesus, who Jesus would give authority over the church he was founding. They would become the very first bishops of the Catholic Church. And John would go on to follow Jesus throughout his ministry for the next three years. So John was right there when he saw Jesus doing healings. John was there hearing Jesus when he was preaching his sermons, when he was working miracles, when he was delivering people from evil spirits. He was an eyewitness to all of it. And that's why John wrote one of the Gospels. One of the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus in the Bible, was written by John. It's called the Gospel of John because of it. And the testimony of John is actually very special because amongst all the other apostles, Jesus picked three of them to be especially close to him, almost like an inner circle. And one of these three was John. The other two were James, his older brother, and Peter, the first pope. And Peter, James, and John were shown things, revealed things by Jesus that the other apostles did not get to see. So, for instance, when Jesus went to the house of Jairus, whose daughter had just died, and Jesus took her by the hand and said, little girl, get up. And she rose from the dead. Only Peter, James, and John were there to witness the miracle. These three were also the ones who went up the mountain and witnessed Jesus's transfiguration. This moment when he no longer showed himself as an ordinary man, but showed himself in his glory as the son of God, where his face was shining like the sun, his clothing was glowing white. And he was speaking with the prophets Moses and Elijah who had gone on before him. 
So John was able to see all of these moments in Jesus's life and record them in his gospel because he was one of the only three people in the world that saw it. And John, in a, in a special way, had a very close friendship with Jesus. He loved Jesus more than any other person in his life, and he knew that he was loved in return by Jesus. In fact, the name that John gives himself when writing the stories of Jesus in his gospel was the beloved disciple or the one who Jesus loved. So he doesn't call himself John in his own gospel. He calls himself the beloved disciple because he knew that it was the love of Jesus that defined him. The love of Jesus was his deepest identity. He knew that he was beloved by Jesus and he had never met a man like him. Jesus was not only his teacher, his Lord, his master, but he was his closest friend who he loved with all his heart. He knew that Jesus loved him and that's all he needed to know. Now, don't get the idea from this that John was somehow this, you know, soft, lovey-dovey, hippie guy. No, Jesus had to really reel John in sometimes when, for instance, his brother and him wanted violent vengeance on a group of Samaritans. They were once trying to get into a Samaritan town. The Samaritans uh, were a group of Jewish people who had long ago separated and had intermixed themselves with outside races. And so there was ethnic hostility between the two groups of Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus wanted to go into this Samaritan town, but they refused to let him in. And so John and James were offended on Jesus's behalf, and they wanted Jesus to call down fire from heaven to fall on the city and destroy every Samaritan in sight. They wanted to go full nuclear on the Samaritan village. And it's interesting that they asked Jesus to do this because that shows that they believed that Jesus really had the power to do it. So they didn't think that Jesus was just some ordinary man. They knew that he had power from God and he could torch this town if he wanted to. But Jesus rebuked John for the violence that was in his heart. And from then on, Jesus had a new nickname for James and John. He nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. So John may have called himself the beloved disciple in his gospel, but Jesus had his own nickname for him. He called him a Son of Thunder because of that one time where he wanted to destroy a whole village because he was offended. There was this other time where Salome, who was John's mother, brought him and his brother James to Jesus. And she tried to convince Jesus to show special privilege to her boys by letting them rule beside Jesus when he was crowned king. Now, when the other apostles heard that Salome was speaking on behalf of James and John, trying to get them with more authority than they had, they were angry at James and John for trying to pull a fast one on them, right? You can just imagine them saying to them, well, who do you think you are? Getting your mom to come in and try to, to put you over us through a backdoor deal with Jesus? What's wrong with you? But Jesus used this as a teaching moment to teach all of them what it meant to be his followers. That yes, he was making them apostles to rule over this church that he was founding on his behalf, but that their ruling over the church should look different from what they imagined ruling would. He tells them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus was explaining that you have to imitate me. I didn't come to be served, but to serve others, to even give my life for others. That's what leadership looks like in my church. That's what leadership you are being called to exercise as my apostles. So John wasn't perfect. He could be violent. He could be power hungry at times, but he had a big heart and he really did love Jesus. And he listened to his teachings. He listened when Jesus rebuked him for being violent. He listened when Jesus told him, this isn't how you get authority in my church. You have to be a servant. He learned from his friend that his authority was not to be used selfishly, but to serve others. And John learned this lesson most powerfully the night before Jesus was killed. They had all gathered together for one final meal. This was the last supper they would have before Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And John was sitting beside Jesus and he was leaning his head back on Jesus's chest which might seem a little weird to our ears nowadays, but there was nothing inappropriate here. He was just reclining at dinner. Back then, they wouldn't sit at chairs around a table. They would recline. They would kind of lay on the ground um, around the table. And so it was very normal or natural for him to lean back on Jesus as they were eating as a sign of their deep friendship, the love that they had for each other. This was admittedly a very deep level of intimacy, but it was a normal way to show affection in that culture. And during the meal, Jesus did two very important things. The first thing that he did was he washed his own apostles' feet. This was the job of the lowest slave in the house, because you can imagine just walking around in sandals all day that people's feet would get pretty nasty back in that time. But Jesus washed his apostles' feet one by one, showing them with his own actions what it means to be a servant leader in the church. And then he celebrated the very first Eucharist. Jesus took bread and wine and said the very first Mass, and the bread and the wine became his own body. And when he did this, he told his apostles, do this in remembrance of me. And this is so significant because he gave them the power to do the most amazing miracle he had ever worked. Jesus had calmed storms. He had raised the dead. He had multiplied food. But this moment at the Last Supper was the greatest miracle of all because the bread and the wine became his own body and blood. This amazing thing that we could now receive into our very hearts the body and blood of Jesus truly present. And he gave this miraculous power to the apostles. That night, John was ordained a priest and bishop of the Catholic Church. What a tremendous gift John was given. And the whole church was given that night that Jesus instituted the priesthood. Now, the night of the Last Supper, John was shown, first of all, that he had received great power. He was one of the first bishops of the church. He now had the power to say the mass, to perform all these other sacraments that would be done in Jesus's name. But he also learned because of Jesus's feet washing that all of this authority must be exercised in a servant way, always out of love for Jesus, making yourself a slave for the sake of God's people. Now, after dinner, all of them went out to a garden called Gethsemane. And when they got there, Jesus became 
very distressed. And he went away by himself to pray, taking, of course, with him his inner circle of chosen apostles, Peter, James, and John. And John was forced to watch as Jesus agonized over his coming death. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him, the torture and the brutality of the death that he was about to undergo. And Jesus was also experiencing the weight of all the world's sin that he was taking upon himself as our Savior and our Redeemer. And John was watching his friend go through this agony as Jesus pleaded with his Father in heaven to be spared. And Jesus was so stressed out by this experience that he was actually sweating blood. And during his agony, periodically, Jesus would go back to check on Peter, James, and John. But it says in Luke chapter 22 that when he came back to them, he found them sleeping from sorrow. This is kind of a weird line. Uh, Does it mean that John was just tired and he fell asleep? Maybe. I mean, we've seen that John is imperfect. He certainly has his rough edges. Uh, Maybe they just had a big meal. It was a late night and he just couldn't keep his eyes open. But I think that something else is going on, especially because it's described as sleeping from sorrow. Maybe it was the sorrow of watching his best friend and the constant nerves of the evening, uh, the the awareness that something bad is going to happen and I can't stop it, that just completely drained John of all of his emotional and, and physical energy. And he just collapsed in exhaustion after going through this experience with Jesus. We don't know. It's this kind of mysterious thing in the Bible. But whatever it was, Jesus came back and found John in some state of sleep. And he had to wake him up and tell them all, my betrayer has come. And Judas, one of Jesus's 12 apostles, came and betrayed Jesus in that garden. When Jesus was betrayed and the guards moved in to arrest Jesus, all of the apostles fled the garden to escape being arrested with him. And that includes John. This must have been a moment of real shame for John that in Jesus's moment of crisis, he abandoned him and fled from the garden to save his own skin. However, unlike all the others who stayed hidden, John came back. Love for Jesus overcame his fear of arrest, and he returned to follow along with Jesus one last time as Jesus went through his trial, was beaten, was crowned with thorns, was condemned to death, and was led to his execution by crucifixion. John followed along with him. He may have ran away at the beginning, but he came back. Love compelled him to come back to be with his friend in these moments of agony. And after Jesus was crucified and was hanging on the cross, John was standing at the foot of that cross, along with Jesus's mother, with Mary Magdalene, and with John's own mother, Salome. All of them were there trying to offer what comfort they could to Jesus as he suffered and died on the cross. In one of the last acts he did before he died, Jesus looked down at his mother Mary and John, his beloved disciple, and he said those beautiful words to them, Mother, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And it says that after that point, John 19, 27 says, From that hour, the disciple, speaking of John, took her into his own home. Now, the literal meaning of this is very clear that Jesus wanted someone to take care of his mom after he was gone. Joseph had already died at this point, and so Jesus 
was telling John, take care of my mother, take her into your home, make sure she's looked after. But on a deeper meaning, Jesus is giving Mary as a spiritual mother to John, his beloved disciple. And by extension, all of us who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus, who are loved by the Lord, we too are invited to take Mary as our spiritual mother. And just as John brought her into his physical house, we can bring Mary into the house of our heart. And John showed this with his own life, this beloved disciple who took Mary as his own mother at the foot of the cross. Now, Jesus's death was a very traumatic experience for John, right? Can you imagine watching the man who you loved so much dying on the cross, powerless to stop it? But three days later, we know that the story wasn't ended. And Mary Magdalene came back to the place where all the apostles were staying with an incredible story that somehow the tomb was empty. Now, when Peter and John heard this news, they ran to the tomb to investigate. And in the Gospel of John, I love that this is in there. John writes down that in the race to the tomb, he beats Peter. He was the faster runner, which leads me to believe that John had a bit of a uh, competitive streak to him because he wanted all of history to know forever that he could beat the first pope in a running race. But John got to the tomb first and both of them looked in. And it was at this moment when John saw the empty tomb that he believed in the resurrection. Not all the other disciples were as faith-filled, by the way. Some of them, it took them a lot longer to believe that Jesus rose. But John had faith that Jesus had risen just as he promised. And later on, John would have his faith in the resurrection built up even more when Jesus appeared to them again. They had all gone back to fishing, kind of like, what do we do now? I guess we go back to our old jobs. But Jesus had appeared on the shore and worked the same miracle of a miraculous catch of fish. And when John saw this, he looked at Jesus and recognized him before all the others and called out, it's the Lord, overjoyed that his friend was alive again. Now, after Jesus went back to heaven, John and the other apostles spread throughout the known world, telling everyone the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and building up the church that he founded. John himself worked in Palestine and the regions of Turkey, and eventually he settled in the city of Ephesus, where he lived with Mary in his home. Imagine how amazing that must have been for John, to live with the mother of Jesus, loyal to Jesus' words to take her as his mother from the foot of the cross. And he wrote many letters from his place in Ephesus to the new churches. Three of them are actually listed in the Bible, the first, second, and third letter of John. And throughout these letters, John's central theme for the early church is an encouragement for them to love one another. And I want to read you just an excerpt of some of the writings of John so that you can get a hint, get a flavor for what he writes about. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and onward, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I think this passage from his writings sums up the heart of John the beloved disciple so well. That he knows that we are loved by God. And as a response to that love, we must love others. That God sent his son into the world out of love to help us draw closer to him in love. It's this beautiful writings. I really encourage you to read the letters of John in the Bible. Now, most of the earliest accounts of the life of John testify that John was the only apostle out of all the others who was not killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But it wasn't from lack of trying, let's say, because uh, one of the earliest writers of the life of John described what happened to John when he wrote, the apostle John was first plunged, unhurt, into boiling oil, and then he was remitted to his island exile. So this is kind of a, a brutal scene. John was arrested for his faith in Jesus. And when he refused to deny his Lord, he was sentenced to be plunged into boiling oil to die. But when they plunged him into the oil, he wasn't burnt. He came out completely protected. And they were so astounded by this miracle that they didn't try to kill him anymore. They basically exiled him to a prison island where he would serve out the remainder of his time. And it's probably from this island of exile on the island of Patmos that he wrote the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a series of visions that John received from Jesus about the church, about the glory that was awaiting them in heaven, and about the end of the world. Now, if you haven't read the book of Revelation, I'm not going to lie, it's pretty confusing. If you haven't read the Bible much before, maybe don't start with reading the book of Revelation. But if you have read the Bible for a while and you kind of know how the language works, it's an incredibly beautiful book, this mystical book that John received through visions from Jesus. Now, due to his enemies being unable to kill him, John eventually died at a very old age and went on to rejoin his beloved Jesus in heaven, never to be separated again. Now, it's easy to see from the life of St. John why he's a good model for the priesthood. He was someone who left everything behind to follow Jesus. He left behind his career. He left behind his family. And he received real power from Jesus, the power to say the mass, the power to preach. But he had to use that authority in gentleness and love. He was a man who was devoted to Mary, the mother of Jesus, took her into his own heart, which is so important for priests. Uh, one prayer that I pray every single morning is a prayer to Mary, the mother of priests, because she has a special place in her heart for those sons who follow as priests after her own son, Jesus. Now, John wasn't perfect. He knew his limitations. He knew his weaknesses, just like all priests have, just like I have. But he knew that he was loved by Jesus despite his weaknesses, and he loved him back. His heart was given over completely to Jesus. And so in all of these things, I will definitely try to imitate his example as I enter into the priesthood. And I invite you to pray for me as we pray together to St. John for this to take place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. John, through your intercession, we pray for all priests throughout the world. We pray for our parish priests, for the priests that are on mission, for the priests that have played especially important roles in our life with the sacraments. 
that all of them would be like St. John in that they are devoted to Mary, they love the Lord, and they exercise their authority and sacramental power in a way that is motivated for love of Jesus and love for the people that they serve. I pray for all those who are being ordained priests soon. Shamelessly, I ask all of you to pray for me as well. Pray that I would be a good and holy priest who would follow after Jesus all the days of my life. And I also pray for any young men who are discerning the priesthood, especially those who might be listening right now, that like St. John, you would have the courage to drop your nets, drop your plans, drop your relationships, drop your careers, to follow the Lord's call to come away with him and follow him in a unique way. And I pray for all of us that like St. John, we would know at our deepest level that we are loved by God, that we are his beloved disciples who can rest our heads on his heart and be assured that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. St. John, the beloved disciple, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.